Live from Treaty 1 territory in the heartland of the Métis Nation, the place where the great waterways meet and the heart of Turtle Island. I'm excited to host the first Nuit Blanche Toronto podcast, where we find ourselves in the territory of Toronto under the treaty of a dish with one spoon and is home to some of the most diverse population in Canada. I am your host and artistic director, Julie Nagam, and this is our second season of Belonging to Place. We are excited to showcase episode one, Holding Ground, which will reflect on the contributions that Nuit Blanche has given the City of Toronto over the last 15 years, with a full takeover that totals over 1,600 artworks. This episode will reflect on the new book that illuminates the position of public art exhibitions within urban spaces. We will be hearing from contributors Dr. Janine Marcheseau, Ambreen Inayat, Alyssa Ferron, and Hiba Adela. The creation of Nuit Blanche in Paris, France in 2001, which I just witnessed in the fall, has had a ripple effect on public art events in cities around the world. Its impact in Canadian cities such as Halifax, Charlottetown, Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, Winnipeg, Regina, Calgary, Saskatoon, and Kamloops all host Nuit Blanche or similar annual festivals at different scales and at different times of the year. Over the past 15 years, Nuit Blanche Toronto has established itself as the largest public exhibition in North America and second to Paris internationally, drawing over a million people each year for a 12-hour period. Since its founding in 2006, it has featured more than 1,600 art installations by approximately 5,800 artists and has generated over $443 million in economic impact and benefits for the city. The book Holding Ground, Nuit Blanche and Other Ruptures is where I get another opportunity to work with my mentor and friend, Dr. Janine Marcheseau, who co-edited the book with me. Over the past 15 years, Janine has been involved as a curator, spectator, and scholar of screen-based media and public art. And I'm just thrilled to have her start off season two. I was invited by the city along with Michael Prokopow to um, collaborate on a project, a monumental project that involved Director X, Gloria Sigismondi and Philip Beasley to experiment with different kinds of screen uh, technologies. So Floria did the water screen in the fountain and Director X did a huge inflatable earth or sun rather. And then Philip Beasley did these sheets, pieces of material inside City Hall. And then I was asked to sit on the advisory board, which has been really, really interesting. So getting more into the inside of Nuit Blanche. And I'm working with you, Julie, on this book called Holding Ground, which is looking at the 15-year history of Nuit Blanche. So it seems that being initially skeptical about whether it would be a good fit for me, it's become you know, a very good fit. And I've become increasingly involved in it over the years as it's evolved. Kind of goes back to what I said that the incredible support that you get as as a curator or as an artist, and I mean that, you know, technical support, but also just, you know, aesthetic professional support to put on a show. 
And um, there are different kinds of Nuit Blanche interventions. And some are big. Some are these monumental, like, awe, wonder-inspiring events. And then some are smaller and have a lot, a lot of detail and are close up, essentially. So in the essay that I wrote for our book, which was around stargazing and this idea of wonder and a, and thinking about the utopian aspects of Nuit Blanche, I was just starting to think about the number of projects that are about that are about the cosmos, that are about the bigger bigger than us, and about collective experience. The sociologist Emile Durkheim talks about this idea of. Um, collective effervescence. It's something that he talks about in reference to religion, but people have used that idea in relationship to artistic experiences. And that is what I think Nuit Blanche does so well when it succeeds. And it doesn't always succeed, and that's fine. So there's a lot of projects going on, but it has an experimental dimension to it that opens up spaces and allows artists and curators to try something. And so that's, you know, those are the projects that I was thinking about, projects that kind of take your breath away and that you have the effect that you don't want to leave. You're actually there and it's so pleasurable it and it takes you out of yourself. And I think when we put together Museum for the End of the World, that's where you know, there were a number of projects. I mean, all of the projects, of course, were fantastic, but there were a few projects that had that effect. And then coupled with, we had invited the Nathaniel Deck Corral to perform throughout the evening. And there was the just the experience of the sound, of the voices, of the bodies. And then some of the artworks created this just a wonderful moment of, you know, I wouldn't call it ecstasy, but it is that kind of aspect of being together where people are talking to each other, you know, who don't know each other, you know, where we're all strangers with nothing in common except what is before us. So that that is what excites me about Nuit Blanche. And I think that's what people will miss when, I guess, this year when Nuit Blanche is not happening or last year when it was not happening. And that's why people are anxious for it to return, because it is this moment in the history of the city in the year that where things open up. It's like a cracking open. The kind of meandering through the city streets that is employed by Nuit are filled with awe and wonder while you try and navigate through the monumental and the most intimate artworks. In 2006, the city of Toronto was transformed forever, and the city staff at that point had no idea of the long-term impact of this free all-night exhibition that ultimately created strategies for public art and creative capital for the city more broadly. The infrastructure of the Department of Arts and Culture at the City of Toronto is embedded with incredible staff that make this magical event happen. One of the people that works at producing these artworks, we get to hear from Umbreen, who can give us some of the historical inside information of what brought her into the realm of public art. Sure. So yeah, happy to start at the beginning. I think it was around 2008. I started at Nuit Blanche and it, I was put on the exhibition with Hema, 
who ironically I, I already worked with her the summer prior on this project in Little India and it was called Little India Big Story and it was a piece about documenting stories because they didn't exist there was there is no archive in Little India and so I was brought on as a project manager to help them collect these stories in Gerard Street and you know just Gerard Street you can't just go up to people in these shops and you know record their voices so I remember working with those groups saying you gotta eat <laughs> and I would go and hang out with all these shop owners and literally drink tea with them and drink chai with them I would show up every single day and that's how I forged relationships with a place like Little India it's much more you know anthropological where you go and you like vigorously hang out I was like you can't just go there and you can't build trust that way and I ate so much food and I remember I was working with Brendan exactly it was the first time I met Brendan Fernandez who's now this huge you know contemporary dancer and choreographer but back then I remember him saying oh my god I'm bringing everybody hates me and I was like no you just have to eat <laughs> so like it was like an amazing fun project and I was really exposed to a lot of contemporary South Asian artists and I got involved in Saba, the South Asian visual arts collection. And for me, it was just super fun because I got to eat with a bunch of, you know, South Asian people and learn a lot about their history and how they actually moved out into the burbs. But the ones that are still there are trying to preserve their culture and it is becoming a diaspora. So I was sort of involved in the work, you know, without me really knowing. Like, I just thought it was a fun project to hang out with and eat with <laughs> eat with people. And so when I got dropped into Nui, it was like trial by fire. I started in August and Nui was in October. And they put me, like they literally listed me as like the second of the programmer. And I literally asked them like, what does that mean? And they said, just put out fires. So I had no idea what that meant. I was like, literal fire? <laughs> and they didn't, you know, give me any training I was absolutely terrified because, you know, in August and September, you're in show mode. And, you know, Hema had artists from all over coming in from India and abroad. And I think they just thought I could handle it. And, you know, but it was like, I felt so out of place because I got there, you know, in a very different way. You know, we had amazing Jen who came from contemporary art and we had Mickey at the time who came from theater and then, there was me and I got the job, you know, from basically, I, I still remember I was one of the first people who did the interview with Al. And I said, you know, I really, I said, I don't know shit about contemporary art, but I just know that art is therapy, you know, and I had been working in community arts for my entire life. Like even when I was 12 years old, I was working in pancake breakfast and just my parents always sang at home and we grew up with Bollywood and it was my dad was a photographer so it was very much part of our lives but I thought that art was for rich white people like I just thought that you know you go work in your factories and then you come home and then you watch your Bollywood and sing songs so the idea of it being reversed was just never an option for me and so I thought that creativity was used to solve problems you know to escape from your reality to help you process stuff and so that's basically my you know, entry into the world was through social work, through community work. You know, it was always like we wrote plays and we did all sorts of creative things to help people process trauma. And I got to Harbor Fund because I was just, I loved culture. I loved wanting to learn about big things. And Harbor Fund helped me really understand programming. 
And I volunteered there. So in my entire life, if I just want to be somewhere, I don't care if I'm getting paid or not, like I'll volunteer there. So I learned about all these communities, Chinatown, Koreatown, Little India, Ports, Danforth. And once I started doing these tours, that's when someone introduced me to Stavak because they needed someone to go into Little India. So that's sort of how I got there in terms of the cultural standpoint. I have an MSW, so you know I definitely looked at things on in from a therapeutic standpoint, social justice standpoint, and I was like, I'm going to be the bridge to the people, and that really mattered a lot to me. Each year that went by, Nui kept continuing to grow, the public more hungry for art and takeovers of different spaces. The biggest shift for Nui Toronto was to engage communities outside of the downtown core. In 2018, the move to Scarborough happened, and we get to hear from the first curator of that exhibition, Alyssa Ferron. So when I was first approached by the city of Toronto to curate the inaugural exhibition zone, I, I honestly just didn't feel ready. <laughs> I felt like, oh, why am I being approached? I don't think that, you know, I have, I wasn't sure if I had found my voice enough yet to curate something at such, well, what we all knew would be a, a pretty visible exhibition. But at the same time, I thought, well, this is also something that's beyond me. So I, I really can't allow my own insecurities to stand in the way. I really want to do this. I really thought it was just something important to do for my community. That's how I started envisioning the curatorial premise of the exhibition, just thinking about, okay, how can I really highlight the work that's already being done, that's already happening in Scarborough? Scarborough, it's really not typically seen as a place where, you know, creative work or I guess typically hasn't been portrayed as a place where innovative or forward thinking creative work happens. But I, that's how I knew and have come to know Scarborough because I grew up there. So I wanted to do what I could to, to really highlight that and really celebrate it. So kind of like how I explained in my essay that's going to be in the book, thinking about love as a guiding ethic for the way that I wanted to work with artists, the way that I wanted to work with community, the way that I wanted to work with people who would potentially be the audience. I started out thinking that, you know, I really want the audience to, I really want this exhibition, I really want the work to resonate with people who who live in Scarborough, who are from Scarborough. So I wasn't necessarily thinking about attracting a crowd or a downtown audience per se. I thought, no, I want this to be for like my aunties. I want this to be for, you know, my cousins. I want this to be for the people who, who I grew up around. And that really shaped how I selected the artists, how I also how I worked with the artists to develop their work. Most of the projects in that exhibition zone were collaborative projects with people who just live in Scarborough, who are from the community. And that was very deliberate on my part because I wanted to make sure that people in the community felt like they had a real stake in what was going to be happening in the exhibition. So doing that project with Hiba was a lot of fun. And Hiba... You know, when I met her, I could tell immediately that we both had some shared values in terms of how we approach artistic practice and curatorial practice. So that relationship just came about really organically and flowed really naturally. We organized a series of workshops with community members in Scarborough. 
So we we sort of were seeking people who were not necessarily professional artists, but people who were working in creative ways. People like a couple of my aunts, they, they took part in it. There were young people who took part in it. It was an intergenerational group. And for that, we kind of organized almost like these walking tours to various lesser known sites in Scarborough that we felt were kind of the backbone or had historically supported the infrastructure of creative work in Scarborough. For example, we did a stop at Scarborough Arts. We did a stop at Doris McCarthy Gallery at U of T Scarborough. We also went to the Boys and Girls Club and we went to the Guild and we went to a bunch of different sites all across the community in Scarborough and just had conversations about these places. And we also had sessions after we did these walking tour stops and just talked to people like, what is it, what is it that you know, pulled you into Scarborough? What what keeps you here? You know, what fears and anxieties do you have about living here? What dreams do you have about living here and for future generations that will live here? And the conversations were just so rich. And I know that we we captured these snippets. We collected kind of like these snippets and that's what was projected onto the, the walls of the, uh, the Civic Center. But because I know how rich and how wonderful the conversations were even still when i see the work i'm like it doesn't it doesn't fully capture everything that happened but there's there's no way that i could possibly capture just how beautiful those conversations were i still have really fond memories of that experience and that was so interesting for me and i think it's because so many people could see themselves reflected in different parts of different parts of what was said even people I didn't even know come up to me afterwards and just strike up these conversations with me based off of some of the some of the sentences, some of the clips, like those fragments that they saw from the building, because it resonated with their personal experiences so much. That's not something I really anticipated. I knew that it was going to connect. I, I hoped it would connect with people, but the extent that it did, wow, it, it really it caught me off guard in a really in a really wonderful way. And I think that's like, yeah, that's part of the, the beauty of Scarborough in a way. Like we all have these different stories. We all have these different ways of how we've come to be in that one community. And there's, there's a lot of similarities, a lot of shared experiences there. Those shared stories and connection to place is what Nui Blanche can offer to the public through arts and culture. It's the reason why I'm so drawn to this event each year, like a moth to a light. There are some artworks that just resonate with people, and Hibba's artwork is one of those works in Scarborough. As it refers to me, I think for me, like it's always been such a point of reference when thinking about work in public space and what public space and art can really look like in a sense of something we can work towards as being a more permanent way of working as opposed to just this like really magical night that only exists for 12 hours every year. So I think for me as someone who's really interested in systems and, and ways in which we kind of navigate them and you know as artists try to influence maybe ways of changing them, I've always seen Nuit Blanche as this really amazing uh, almost like battleground <laughs> for making those cases and the potential of public art being a lot more expansive than maybe what a lot of cities mandated it to be. 
I work so often collaboratively with others is that I find that the kind of more subtle dynamics of how these relationships come to be are really important. And oftentimes they're not actually noticed or talked about in the work. But for me, just that kind of ethic of working is really, really important. And what I mean by that is that I was asked to do this project. So I was invited as a guest. And because the thematic for that year was so heavily focused on Scarborough and I was not someone who was from Scarborough, I also thought it would be important that if I were to be brought in as a guest, that I would want it to be led by people who reside in this community, who advocate for this community and who see it in a different way than me, who is someone that is an outsider at this point. I mean, now I live there. And I'm very much so embedded in the community, but at the time I wasn't. And so I really wanted that to be clear from the get-go when Alyssa first approached me about doing this because, and I think that's kind of pointing to what you were saying earlier about it resonating with people. Well, it resonated with the community because it was words coming from the community. It wasn't something that I was trying to manifest through my own kind of observations. Yeah, I think it's it's a bit of a contested medium, I would say, (laughs) just because it is, there is a lot of like ethical and political um, motivations and nuances embedded in it. And I think that's probably what draws me to it. But at the same time, I'm always kind of trying to be cognizant and challenging myself in really being transparent as to like my intentions and the intentions of those who are either like hiring me to do something or the people that I'm working with because it's really easy for someone to be exploited and or like a vulnerable community to be used in a way that's like not okay. So it's a really a delicate balance, but I think for me, something that I've always tried to embody and practice is that idea of absolute transparency, absolute honesty. And if at any point anyone feels like whatever is kind of being discussed or the subject matter or the way in which they are being brought into a project is not okay, then that always needs to be honored and like acknowledged and dealt with. Because when you're dealing with someone's life and their experience and their story, that for me is always something that needs to be at the forefront of it. And so what that means is that sometimes I do get to work uh, really kind of collaboratively with others. And sometimes it means that I need to go in myself and make work that is based on my observation because the community doesn't trust me or they actually maybe don't fully understand what I'm trying to do. And that's also okay. Um, And I need to respect that. So I'm never trying to like (laughs) force myself on a place. And then also um, I try really hard to to really build those relationships over time. It's not something you can't just like get someone to trust you like right off the bat. So a lot of projects that I've done, these communities are, you know, these are people that are now friends, they're colleagues, they're people that I still keep in touch with and I've had years and years and years of relationship building with them. And I feel like that's a big part of being a socially engaged artist that is really central to it being an open collaborative space that's safe and productive and creative for everyone involved and not just the artist or the curator. So that's really, really been important to me throughout my career. When you hear all these stories that have deeply impacted Toronto, And at the same time, it's exciting to think about the long-term ripple effects of creatives throughout the city and Canada for public art. 
in building the archive and the book for the city, it was amazing to think about all these incredible projects through the last 15 years. And Umbreen's going to expand on some of her mega faves. So exciting and grateful for you and Janine for pulling it together because our voices were sort of silent. Like we didn't have a voice because we were, you know, the all night contemporary art thing. We didn't really belong. You know, we didn't, we weren't really represented by a white cube. You know, yeah, we are an institution, we're the city, but the city represents the people. And so I think we sort of struggled in having our voices legitimized, if you could, if I could be honest, you know, in the art world and beyond. So having our voices recorded and having stories recorded that are real and authentic and from such diverse experiences, I think means a lot because these are the things you're never gonna see, you're never gonna hear about because we were pretty much nameless, faceless people, you know, and that's what happens when you work at the city, you know, it's about the people and it's the larger org, but there are spirits and souls behind it. And so it's really nice to have something that says our voices matter too. So working backwards, let's say, you know, 2019, the Lunar Garden from Daniel Arsham definitely stood out in my mind. I love projects that just make you stop in your tracks. And it's like that feeling in your stomach of, you know, seeing a mountain for the first time. I love projects that make you feel like, you know, you, you're in a new place and that for me, you're worthy of it. So I always love doing monumental projects because I want people to feel like they are worthy. You may not feel comfortable walking into a museum or a gallery but when you see that we've put this experience together for you, I want you to feel special. Truth for sure. I mean, that project was incredible. Like it was a 75 foot sculpture of the word truth, you know, during the year of truth and reconciliation that Quest hand made. Like, I was like, what the hell are you like Spider-Man? Like I turned around and he handmade this sculpture. It was wild. And we drove that onto the square at Young and Dundas and, those moments of intervention when you're driving this word around up and down the street and we pull it into Young and Dundas Square, like that was astounding. And of course, you know, the generosity of 40 doing that score and then Drake showed up. And what was really important for me in that project was that, you know, there was there was a lot of gun violence and gang violence that took place at Young and Dundas Square. And I, of course, <laughs> was tasked to come up with the project that spoke to community. So definitely that Walk Among Worlds, one of my favorite projects ever. I mean, who would have thought like an inflatable globe that we just toss aside to become this monumental sculpture where we had 7,000 globes. And um, the idea was that once you're inside this world, like first, middle, you know, and third world, it's, it's all the same and it's all actually full of hot air. And I remember we were playing with the lighting because we wanted to ensure the crowds didn't go crazy when they were inside the work and pop the actual globe. Uh, Maximo Gonzalez, amazing artist from Mexico, which I just adored. We brought him back when we did the piece in Scarborough. And um, I mean, there's projects like, of course, JR's project Inside Out. And that was really important to me because it made the entire focus of the people, like the people were the exhibition. And I remember we sent these trucks out. This is before, you know, we, it became cool to go to the boroughs. We were in Scarborough. We were in North York. We were working with the Lassos. Who else? I really loved, oh my God, so many projects. Like Janine's project, you know, Museum for the End of the World was wonderful because she went into 
the basement of City Hall and the parking lot of City Hall, which was really exciting. When I worked with Jim and Jennifer, we had this project called Wild Ride, and it was during the financial crisis that the world was experiencing. And we literally put a carnival ride on Bay Street. And so all you would hear is these screams with this <laughs> like this project where you sat in it and it went around and around and around and around. <laughs> and that blew my mind that a carnival ride could be considered contemporary art where people, you know, were eating cotton candy and they were dropping from the sky. And it was a really good reminder of, you know, contemporary art can really be anything. There's so much freedom there. Rebecca Belmore was awesome. She did this piece called Gone Indian where, you know, we got a truck for her and she blasted out her music and she drove up and down Bay Street, which was wonderful that she sort of broke all rules. Oh, and Weiwei, Weiwei for sure was incredible. Like, I couldn't even believe we produced a project, you know, for an artist that was in house arrest in China. Like that made me really, really proud of the work that we did and that we really stood for something. There are just so many projects to pick from, with over 5,000 artists and the long-term impact that was captured in the book Holding Ground, and the event's relationship to the city, its citizens, and the potential of art to create unifying public experiences and occupations. Holding Ground also explores new models of public art and time, models that engage the temporary while transforming existing urban structures and cities. Over time, the city has built excellent relationships between artists and curators as Hiba expands. I would say my, since showing in Nuit Blanche in 2018, I still have relationships with everyone involved. And my relationship with the city of Toronto has actually gotten stronger. And what I mean by that is I sit on some of the public art committees now, and I also continue to make work with some of the Nui teams. So even for Artworks TO this year, I'm working with one of the teams to do a couple of public artworks. So the relationship continues to grow. And as we continue to get to know each other better, I feel this sense of ambition also growing. They're starting to trust me a little bit more and I'm also starting to trust them a little bit more. And so together we're able, I'm also able to be a lot more open and frank with them about things that maybe I don't feel is like okay or that maybe we could like look to change or even just to understand the city's perspective better. Because I also think that you know, to kind of give the city a little bit of a break. They're, they are always going up against a lot of things. And sometimes those barriers are not always known to us as like the general public. And so even just kind of gaining that knowledge and understanding for myself is like how some of these systems work from the inside is also something I've been able to do since they've kind of been inviting me into whether it's a panel or a discussion, you know, around the city's public art strategy that they've written that they've just completed a couple of years ago. Goes part of some of those talks. So kind of continuing that relationship and seeing where it can go from there is, is so important. And then as well as the artists and the Scarborough residents that I met that I collaborated with on Nuit Blanche, I also still keep in touch with them as well. And a few of them are really incredible, young, up-and-coming artists that I'm just so excited to see their practices grow. And others are still really strong, like leaders in the community. And so it's always interesting to kind of check in and see what they've been up to. And I just think that that's kind of how 
you build a community and, you know, it takes work on both ends. But for me, it's just full of possibilities and excitement. So I'm always, I'm always really eager to do that work. But also now that I've lived in Toronto for as long as I have, I also have a better understanding of what these communities mean to the city and and mean to the people that live there. And so I've tried to kind of bring that out in the works. And I think that it's a really nice 360 almost from what I've done to it and we to being able to kind of come back four years later and, and, and reflect on how these neighborhoods have changed, how maybe they've stayed the same and what that means in terms of like the resilience and, you know, excitement that's kind of happening in, the, in these spaces. Since 2018, Nui has expanded beyond the downtown core. In 2020, we will be including Etobicoke and North York, bringing together artists from across art disciplines and countries, Nui Blanche fuels artistic creation through commissions and independent artworks that advance artistic methodologies of embodied and cultural knowledge that integrate a diversity of site-specific engagements. As we get to hear from Alyssa and the pressure of working within your own community. Yeah, I hope that the exhibition laid a bit of a foundation for, you know, for future creative work to happen, curatorial and creative and artistic work to happen in Scarborough. I think it did because, so I no longer live in Scarborough. I no longer live in Ontario. As you know, I live in Saskatchewan where I work in Regina as the director at Dunlop Art Gallery. But I am constantly watching and having a different perspective in terms of what's happening in Scarborough. And I really see a sense of like enhanced pride in coming from that place that when I was growing up, uh, I I have to say, I didn't really, I didn't really have that experience. I mean, I always had a pride coming from Scarborough, but it wasn't as, I guess it wasn't as celebrated. And so I think that there is a shift that's beginning to happen, not just because of Nuit Blanche itself, but because of all these different pieces. And as I said, there was this infrastructure that already existed prior to Nuit Blanche coming to Scarborough that laid that groundwork for for the creative work that we're seeing now and that we will see going into the future. So I think that all those pieces are aligning and there's a lot of attention in a positive way on Scarborough right now. And so I think that it's like the artists that are coming out of there, um, the creative work that's coming out of there, it's very exciting. It's really interesting for me to get this perspective now, living outside of the community, outside of the province, and just kind of observing things in a different way. Yeah, I miss Scarborough. <laughs> I miss it there. Oh my gosh, yeah, I miss it. I mean, I like my my new home here. Like, it's cool too, but man, Scarborough just has this energy that, like, every time I go back there, because I haven't lived there in, what, a few years now, but every time I go back there, I'm like, no, seriously, this place is an energy that can't be replicated anywhere else. Like, it, it's just, yeah, it's its own unique thing. As Janine and I wrote in the book that Nui Blanche is a unique citywide cultural event that catalyzes new relationships to public space by accessing city infrastructures, making public transportation free, designing new pedestrian-friendly spaces, and discovering urban enclaves often closed to the general public during work hours. For one night only, Nui Blanche bypasses the stringent city bylaws for public gatherings to enable novel forms of being together. 
the event transforms the urban fabric into uncanny landscapes that trade day for night, the private for the communal, to privilege the ambulatory, sensorial interactions of citizens connected through art, spectacle, and festival energies. It was important to us to feature a section from Glissant's dialogue with Obris and the connection back to Paris to unpack some of the intersections of gender and race and sexuality that contributors take up in their curatorial visions. Janine expands on our book and the importance of mapping out all the work that has been done over the past 15 years. That's why I like the title of our book, Ruptures, Nuit Blanche and Other Ruptures, because Nuit Blanche, I think, really is is a rupture in that regulated functioning of the city. It's kind of a dysfunctioning of the city, where things don't work the way they're, they're supposed to work, where there are objects and people where they're not supposed to be. So it just, I think it's what makes it exciting. Yeah, I mean... You know, as somebody who has curated site-specific exhibitions, what happens with, I think, Nuit Blanche is very similar. What happens is that a lot of effort goes into creating the exhibition, but when it's over, it's the strike is brutal. So everything is, you know, just torn down and the documentation is not good. And I think what I've always found surprising about Nuit Blanche is there were incredible artworks um, that are shown at Nuit Blanche, and yet there hasn't been a huge amount of serious critical engagement with Nuit Blanche as an event. And I think it's because it's an event and it happens for 24 hours. Of course, some things are extended, but in general, it's like, you know, it's like fireworks. You know, when they're there, you, when you're in the moment, you know, you have the experience, but afterwards you, it's almost like you don't remember it. And there isn't, there's no evidence, there are no traces that would allow us to reflect on what happened, but also the different projects because Nuit Blanche is, does have very different kinds, very different kinds of projects, very different kinds of artists and curators that have come in, into it. And so I, I think it's, definitely been very challenging. It's been a much bigger project than I thought it would be. But I think it's hugely valuable because it allows us, it's sort of like stopping things and pulling together the images that we have or finding images that we didn't think we had and allowing curators to think about what they've done. So it, it is something that will lead to other things. It'll lead to other hopefully longer articles or other books, et cetera. I think it's really, really important and it probably should have been done earlier, but at least now I do think that the Nuit Blanche organizers know how important it is to document because some years it's well-documented, other years not so well. And I think for curators and artists, it's really important to, uh, to document the event. And it's just, you know, it's so surprising because we have how many millions of people attend Nuit Blanche with phones, cameras, et cetera, it's a new figure, it must be so well documented. But in fact, it's it's so, it's just ephemeral and completely haphazard. The ephemeral, I do think that is what's exciting about it is the surprises, just that sense of the momentary, this idea that kind of reminds me of Halloween. And I don't think anybody said that, but it's there's that kind of festivity about it and that people become something else things 
are transformed into other things, right? There's a metamorphosis going on. There's an alchemy going on. And and that is its appeal. It is an engagement with temporality in a way that, again, is opposite to the functioning of the technocratic city. And so many curators and artists have engaged with that temporality. But the other side is that it disappears, right? Once the sun comes up, it's gone and then things are cleaned up and forever gone. So yeah, that's attractive, but it's also a problem for historians or people who want to write about public art. Nui seeks to emphasize the political changes that are reflected in the curatorial and artistic vision with a new generation of curators and artists who have created ruptures and disruptions by proposing new models of public art with engagements that simultaneously question, decenter, and expand experiences of the city. We are thrilled to be launching this collection of memories of this epic event. Hmm. So I guess I'll leave it there then. Thanks so much for listening. I would love to say chimigwich, marci, and thank you to all the people that make this podcast possible. And tune in again for Nui's Belonging to Place. Oh, 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 oh,